think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. All righty, it is that time again. We're back to try to get you to engage your mind, to transform your way of thinking. It's almost like there's a Bible verse that would have you move in that direction. Ha. Well, if you don't know by now, I'm Michael, and the weather is warming up out there in the frigid Midwest, but I'm still having my coffee today. So, we will see how this all goes today. We are, (coughs) excuse me, endeavoring to continue our walk through Scripture, trying to formulate how it is we think about the world based on who God is. Now, How do we know who God is? Because he's told us. Where has he told us? In Scripture. But not all of Scripture is didactic in nature. Remember this. By didactic, we we mean teaching material. Some Scripture is descriptive rather than prescriptive. We have narrative portions. The majority of your Old Testament is not didactic, that is, teaching directly in nature. When you think of teaching material, think of... The New Testament epistles or Jesus' parables, they are meant to teach you something. The vast majority of the Old Testament is not written to teach you something. It is written to, well, I shouldn't say that. It's not written to teach you something directly. It is is written to teach you something indirectly, meaning you learn who God is, not because somebody pops down and goes, hey, I'm God and I am this, but because those things are demonstrated by God in real time. So, I guess the best way to summarize how we look at that today is God works all things for his glory. Now, remember that means we're walking through scripture now with our foundations in mind. What are these mystical foundations? Well, they're not mystical. God is the creator. Therefore, we are dependent beings and he is not. God is our preserver. He is our savior and our judge. God is faithful. God is precise and long-suffering in his works and dealings with humanity. God is the accomplisher of all things that he has promised. And God is the sanctifier of his people. We will not cleanse ourselves. God will cleanse us. So, let's dive into Exodus chapter 7. If you'll remember, Moses has tried to get Israel delivered through killing of the Egyptians, and that didn't work out for him, so he ran off and hid in the desert for a couple of decades, well, a couple, four to be precise. God calls him, God sends him back, well, God calls him, God commissions him, God sends him back, but it doesn't go according to plan. Israel's mad, Moses isn't thrilled, everybody is here is shocked except for God. The Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Now, if you're Moses, you might be thinking, but he didn't listen to me last time. Exactly. What's going to be different about this time than last time? The answer is really not a whole heck of a lot. What's going to be different about what's going on by uh, plague seven by, say, now? And the answer is not a whole lot. So what's different? God in his work. 
But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Remember, he is Savior. He is redeeming his people Israel. But he is judge. He's going to judge Egypt for their sin. He is also the sanctifier. Meaning, if he is not going to sanctify Pharaoh and change his heart, Pharaoh is going to operate in accord with his nature. He is going to operate in accord with the the baseness of all of humanity, which is steeped in sin. Remember, we saw that after the flood. God brings the flood because every thought of man's heart is only evil continually. After the flood, nothing has changed, but we do have, but we have seen God functioning as judge against sin. So, this promise is made. When Pharaoh doesn't listen to you, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them. Thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. <clears throat> now, you know the story. But... And by the way, if you'd like more in-depth, go to the uh, church's YouTube channel. You can find links to the church's uh, website through the uh, PTM website, or you can go to calvarybaptistrockford.com, and you can find the YouTube channel and go through all of the stuff that we did on Exodus on Sunday morning as we were preaching. We are still in the midst of preaching through the book of Exodus on Sunday morning, and you will see a much more in-depth treatment than what I'm going to do right now. What I want to do right now is get you thinking in categories as we go through this. So what happens? They go, and Aaron's commanded to do the, the one of the signs. So it said, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, work a miracle, you should say to Aaron, take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may come a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and they did just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw, down his, threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Why? Because God's in charge of these things. He is the creator. So if he looks at a piece of wood and says, you're not a piece of wood anymore, you're a snake. Well, guess what? It's now a snake. And when he looks at the snake and says, you're not a snake anymore, you're a piece of wood. Well, guess what? Pharaoh called for the wise men, <coughs> the sorcerers, and also the, and, uh, they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. This one may not be that big of a secret. If you grab a snake and just throw it away, it might appear to be pretty, pretty stiff, depending on the snake. So I don't know if it's that or, you know, they just got the good stuff going on over there. But either way... Each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, and yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. The thing that gets lost right there is, after Aaron's snake eats all of their snakes, Aaron picked his snake up again, and it was a wooden stick. So, I mean... <laughs> What I love is that, oh yeah, you're not so special, you're not so tough, we can do magic tricks too. Watch. Heh. Aren't we special? So we continue. Said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn, he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the, to the, going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent, you shall tell, uh, say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go, dun, 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 so that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. And, by the way, it was so. This is what happens next. Now, my favorite thing in the plagues is this, actually, because 
They turn the water to blood. They turn the water to blood. The fish die. The river stinks. People are having to dig up the groundwater now because everything in pots and basins and cups and wherever you would have it. The magicians manage to dig up some groundwater that hasn't been turned into blood and seek to turn it into blood themselves. Now, what they put some dye in there, I had, I don't care. I just love that they finally found some water they could drink, and then they turned it into blood. Like, dude, how are you helping? The answer is... You're not. How are you demonstrating a power equal to God? And the answer is, you're not. What you are demonstrating is that you have power unequal to God. Why? He is creator. You are dependent. He is precise in his miraculous workings. You in your magical workings and whatever it is these magicians and people are coming up with are not precise. They're actually quite dumb. They're not hitting the mark. They're going, oh yeah, we got powers too. Look, snakes and water to blood. How about you get rid of his snake? How about you get rid of the bloody water? You want to do some magic tricks and prove that Yahweh has no authority. You see the problem here. Now, this is what's going to continue. Moses goes back to Pharaoh and says, Thus you shall say, Let my people go, they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. And, just like in the creation account, and it was. Once again, though, what happens? The magicians. Oh, Stretch out your hand, and I lost it. And the magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up over the land of Egypt. I love that again. We're inundated with frogs. God is judging us, or Yahweh is judging us. Magicians, what have you got? Oh, you want to know what we got? We'll make frogs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because Yahweh doesn't have power, we got power. Yahweh thinks he's in charge of the frogs? Oh, yeah? We'll make frogs, too. Once again, how are you helping? What are you accomplishing? And the answer is you're not accomplishing a thing because, once again, you are a dependent being in sinful rebellion against God. Therefore, you do dumb things. You have lost wisdom. You have rejected the might, power, and brilliance of God. As a Bible verse puts it, you have exchanged the truth for a lie and chose to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what are you giving over? degrading passions, futility of mind. You do dumb things. What's the rule? Exactly. Don't do dumb things. So this continues on. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth and it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats. The magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Dun, dun, dun. The bugs did it for him. Reaches to a point where it's like that joke, you know, where um, God God challenges the scientist to a competition to make life. Because science is like, I can make life too. I'm just as powerful as you are. So, you know, God takes the dirt and and forms a man and breathes life into him. And the scientist goes, oh, yeah, watch this. And he grabs a pile of dirt and God goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Get your own dirt. (laughs) Same thing here. Magicians are like, okay, we can we can trick you by, you know, introducing some food coloring or some wine into the water to make it look red like blood. By the way, Moses actually turned the water to blood. It didn't look like blood. It, it was blood. Ugh. We can, you know, de-paralyze the snakes that were holding like a cat by the back of the neck to make them look like a staff and then a snake again. But we can't turn dirt into bugs. Why can God? 
because he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the one who upholds your molecules, the bug molecules, the stick molecules, all the molecules upheld by God and God alone. So, <clears throat> Moses wrote, uh, the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go, they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants. And it was. Then what do you get? We need, I almost need to borrow that What's in the Bible song. All the cattle died. Boils break out on man and... Ugh. And again, where does he get it from? The soot out of the kiln. He puffs it up into the air. In the sight of Pharaoh, it'll become fine dust over the land of Egypt, and all will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. To which we go, oh, lovely. As if we weren't bitten enough by flies and gnats. Now we get boils. Why? Because God is judge. And you are seeing the judgment come upon the people. Now, one thing you will notice if you're paying attention, when we talk about God being precise, is notice that we uh, don't make a mention of it's for all the plagues because it's not mentioned for all the plagues. Goshen is going to start getting exempted. Goshen, where the Israelites live, are going to be set aside and not be participants in this plague. See, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. You're going to see this with the boils. You're going to see this with the hail. You're going to see this with the darkness. And you'll see this finally with the firstborn. Why? Because of that precision. Because God, while judging Egypt, is saving Israel. He does not have to just swing wildly and hope he hits something. It's like when you first take up golf, and we all, what's the first thing you do when you get a, when you get a bag of golf clubs? What, what club do you grab? Let's be honest. Nobody has ever gone to the driving range who has played golf for any short length of time and picked up, you're like, you know what? I'd like to work on my seven iron today. No, he's going grip it and rip it with a driver, tee it high and let it fly just to see how far he can hit it. And that's why we all stink at golf for the first, you know, millennia we play it or so. Because we can't make sense of this because all we're trying to do is see how stinking far we can hit the ball. No control, no finesse. And even with an intermediate player, what do you end up doing? You go out to the driving range and you hit some drivers. And you hit a couple of short irons, and you hit a couple of long irons, and we, you know, putter around on the putting green. We putt more than we hit drivers. What do we practice more? Uh-huh. No precision. No thought process as to how this is going to occur. The other example we'll use is, you know, the dad just swinging in the back seat trying to hit somebody because you kids won't behave back there. God doesn't operate like that. His wrath is not anger as in human anger. It is measured. It is controlled. It is meted out. The volcanoes can erupt. The rains come from heaven. The earth is torn apart. And that ark floating on the surfaces of the waters is just fine. Everything is destroyed because of the violence of the storm, the violence of the destruction wrought upon the planet. And yet those eight souls and those critters on the boat are just fine. Nobody's getting sick and dying. Nobody's having cancer. Nobody's having a heart attack. We're just fine. Why? Because the precision of God sustaining his people, preserving their work, will stand. So you get the boils. Then you get the hail. So we're destroying 
you know, crops. We're killing animals and probably people because they're refusing to listen. We're enacting precise judgment on the enemies of God. And whatever crops happen to survive the plague of hail are then going to get eat up in chapter 10 by the locusts. And then the darkness comes. And you know the darkness for three days was good for all of the crops. You know, people that had their little gardens and things. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had a garden, like a little windowsill garden. They're fragile. Don't take care of them for a day or two and watch how quickly they go. It's, it's something else. Again, though, Christian, as you think through this, ask yourself this. What aspect of nature in life has God not attacked? He's attacked water. He's attacked food. He's both, you know, whether you're vegan or a, a pescatarian or, you know, an omnivore, however you want to define your diet. He's taken the fish out. He's taken cattle out. He's taken crops out. He's taken personal health with the boils. He's taken your, pos- your, uh, your peace and prosperity with frogs and flies and gnats. I mean, imagine being inundated with frogs for a night so that they're literally in bowls in your house. How much sleep you getting? How much sanity is left in these people? There is no part of the judgment of God that is not affected. Now, real quick, start drawing your straight line and go to the modern world. Have you wondered why psychiatry and psychology has had such a boon in the last hundred years? Have you ever thought about that? And it's not just simply because Freud and Jung and all of these other guys – It's not because they just suddenly popped up and had an idea and everybody's like, hey, I like that. Let's jump on the bandwagon here. No. They're not the cause. They're a symptom. The mental illness crisis that's going on in the United States, the suicide crisis that goes on worldwide, the crisis of marriage that goes on in the Western world, all of these things are symptoms of the greater problem, sin. Sin corrupts, sin destroys, and a people that are more comfortable with their sin than they are with repentance and trusting in God are a people who are operating under judgment. They are a people who are no longer receiving the presence of God to bless them, but are receiving the presence of God to curse them. Just like Egypt here, you're seeing the same thing in our world today. Now, am I telling you God is judging them and there is no hope? No. No, I'm not. There was hope for Israel. There was hope for Pharaoh. Every day that Moses went to him, there was hope that he might repent. There was hope for the officials that listened to the message, just like there's hope for us today. We disciple. We know that our hope is in our Savior, not here. We know that our hope is in the work of sanctification, not the pleasantries of this world. And we also have a hope for those around us that as we proclaim and as we live out our faith, that their hearts will be changed, their minds will be enlightened, and they will turn from their wicked ways and call upon God to restore their sanity as he cleanses their sin and to restore their prosperity as he cleans their souls. This is the way that we live in this world. This is the way the Israelites are supposed to live. This is why the distinction was drawn between the land of Goshen and the rest of Egypt. Because I fully believe that there were Egyptians like, you know what? I'm moving my family to Goshen for a couple weeks. Because I don't know what's going on, but I'm getting out of here and I know that there's nothing going on over there. There's a common grace and there's also a special grace. Because I think there were Egyptians, just like when Israel, we'll talk about this when we get there, just like when Israel leaves Egypt. They're immediately commanded how the foreigner among them can celebrate the Passover meal. 
Why? Why? I mean, it's Israel. They've been redeemed from Egypt. What foreigner? The answer is there's foreigners in their midst. There are people of Egypt who are like, I'm out of here. We're following Yahweh. We're walking in his ways because he has proven himself amongst the people. Same is true today. See, the assumption from Peter is that you'll give a defense for the hope that lies within you. The assumption of that, which is uh, 1 Peter 3, by the way, the assumption of that is that people are going to be demanding a reason for the hope that lies within you, which means you're going to be proclaiming it and defending it in the face of the systems and thought processes of the world. We don't get to go and hide. Israel didn't get to go and hide. They were still in the midst of Egypt. They were preserved in the midst of the tribulation around them. And yes, you could draw a line to that eschatology, but I'm going to refrain and I'm going to leave that alone for just a minute. (laughs) They were preserved in the midst of the judgment of the world around them in Egypt. Christian, we too are preserved in the midst of the judgment around us. We will be saved. We may not be as prosperous as we would like, and we may not have life as pleasant and comfortable in the here and now as we would like. But if we are in Christ, and he is our Savior and not our judge, then we are longing as we walk in sanctification for the accomplishing of his promises. And we know that as the tornadoes and the hurricanes and whatever it is, the earthquakes and you know nuclear explosions, whatever it might be that comes upon this world that God uses as judgment upon sinners, that even if it kills us, his precision and his functioning will carry us safely to the kingdom. We will be in his presence, blameless with great joy. Now, that brings us to chapter 11. There's one final plague that's coming. What's it going to be? Death of the firstborn. The angel of the Lord, or the angel is going to go through. About midnight, I am going to go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstone. All the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a great cry. Now, how do we get exempt from this? Passover lamb. This month shall be a beginning of months for you. Speak to all the congregation on the tenth month there to take each one a lamb to themselves according to their father's household. What do you do? It lives in your house for four days. Then you slaughter it. You roast it. All of it. You eat all of it. Leave nothing over. Whatever you leave left over that you can't finish, you burn in the fire. You take the blood. You put it on the doorpost. When the angel comes through, he sees the blood and he passes over. Now again, God is precise. We know this. And he is precise in his grace and he is precise in his judgments. Does God need to see blood on a doorpost? Be like, oh, oh, can't kill that house. They did the job. And the answer is no. The blood on the doorpost is a testimony and a profession. Christian, this is why baptism is a public event. This is also why I'm a believer's baptism person. Because baptism is supposed to be a profession of faith and a testimony to the world. You couldn't get up the next morning in Egypt and mistake who believed in Yahweh and who did not. There was literally a mark upon their door. You got up without the mark mourning the death of your son. Your neighbor got up with the mark not mourning the death of his son. You knew what the line was. The line was that they had listened to the voice of God and done what he proclaimed, and you did not. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. This is how this occurs. 
And this is going to be inaugurated into a feast. This is going to be the setup for everything. This will be a reminder year in and year out for Israel down through the ages that what? That God, creator, sustainer of everything, redeemed this people. He judged their enemies in that no matter what has happened in the nation, he has been faithful to his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David. He has been faithful to all of those promises. He has been long-suffering in dealing with a sinful people, and he has been precise in upholding them and making sure. You want to see precision in your Old Testament? Go look at the Assyrians wiping out the northern kingdom of Israel and then not being allowed by God to wipe out the southern kingdom of Judah. Why does God send the angel to kill 185,000 Assyrians after they've destroyed Samaria, but before they destroyed Jerusalem? The answer is because the Assyrians deported and destroyed people. They intermarried, they intermingled, they dispersed people so that they would destroy your ethnic heritage so that you would be less likely to rebel against the Assyrians. That was all fine and good in the 720s for the Israelites, wasn't good for the Judeans. Why? Because the Judeans are where the, the, the king would come from. So the Samaritans are given judgment by Assyria. The Judeans are not. The Babylonians get to take on the judgment against the Judeans. Why? Because the Babylonians preserve and take the best of the best of the ethnic heritage and allow you to keep yours. So the, the family line of David is preserved. The priestly lines in, the, in, Judea, in Judea of the Levites is preserved. We have all of those things so that when Christ comes, we can prove it. That's precision at work. So it came about at midnight. The Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, and the firstborn of Pharaoh sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. No distinction. Rich, poor, lofty, downtrodden, free man, slave, prisoner, judge. All under the hand of God. Not some of them. All of them. This is something else we have to remember. Why aren't we afraid of people? Because they're just people, and they're not God. This is what Jesus is reminding you. Don't fear the people who can kill you. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. The one who can destroy the soul. And no, I'm not talking about annihilationism, but the one who can destroy the soul as well as the body. If all you can do is kill me, you have no power. You have no authority, and I don't have to fear you or worry about you. Therefore, the Israelites get to party on Wayne and party on Garth, and they get to take off. And the firstborn are consecrated. And when Pharaoh had let the people go, this is the end of chapter 13, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. He knows them, doesn't he? He's patient with them. Hence God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Why? Because Joseph made a promise. When you leave here, when God fulfills his promises that I know he's going to fulfill, take me with you as a reminder and a testimony to our brothers. And then they set out from Succoth, and the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and a pillar of fire by night to lead them by light, that they might travel by day and by night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So in other words, he's not forgetting. He is upholding. He is accomplishing. They need someone to lead them along the way. Who's the best person to do that? Well, God is. If you're not seeing this by now, and I hope you are, I've been trying to be real intentional about this, 
God is operating according to the nature of who he is and according to how he operates in the world. And Christian, we can draw a straight line from the work of God in the Old Testament to the work of God in the here and now. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't forsaken. The church grows. Disciples are made. Hearts are strengthened. The gospel is proclaimed, and the gates of hell are powerless to do anything about it. They couldn't do anything about it with Cain. They couldn't do anything about it with Pharaoh. They couldn't do anything about it with Esau. They couldn't do anything about it with the Assyrians, with the Babylonians, anything. Why not? Because God's creator, God is sustainer, and we are dependent not on Satan, but upon God who upholds all things. So, as you deal with the world, make sure you're try- you're seeing things in categories. And what I mean by that is, <clears throat> don't just look at events and be like, oh, well, there's, there's God's judgment. It might be, but it also might be God's shaking. And it also might be God's strengthening. Think through this in categories for who is being worked on and who is doing the working. This is going to become important because as you deal with the arguments for the world, as they make their arguments about how they get to define marriage and how they get to define sexuality and how they get to define biology and virology. I mean these are – you notice we're having all of these fights suddenly? That there's seemingly lines of demarcation about how a virus operates. Shouldn't that be – I mean shouldn't that be objective in nature whether you're a pagan or a Christian scientist, a believer or an unbeliever? You should be able to look at that and go, OK, this is what science says. And the answer is no because we threw biology out the window. So we're going to throw health out the window and we're going to throw the study of viruses out the window. Why? Because at the end of the day, in order to reject all of these foundations, we have to build our own somewhere else. And that's what humanity is doing. So learn what foundation they're rejecting and which one they're trying to undermine in order to create their whatever it is they're creating. That way you're not attacking the outcome. You're never going to win attacking the outcome. Christians have been discovering this the last 50 years really with, um, with heretics, with false teachers. Is you get a false teacher – and he weasels his way into somebody's heart and mind, and they just love him. They think he's amazing. And then you attack him, and you undermine his character, and and you go after all of these things about him. And what does a person following him do? They just dig in their heels all the more, because how dare you attack the precious? I mean, how dare you go after him? We just love him, and he's so amazing and precious. And you're like, what? Why do you keep doing that with your voice? And they're like, I don't know. It just, I just think he's so precious. And because what have you done? You've attacked the person. Forget the person. The person's irrelevant. Go after the idea. Go after the teaching. Build the right foundation. Don't go after the transgender advocate. Go after the foundation that allows for transgenderism. Don't go after the homosexual advocate. Go after the foundation that attempts to redefine marriage away from God's standard, that attempts to redefine government away from God's standard, that attempts to redefine family away from God's standard, that attempts to redefine society, neighbor, all of these things. Go after the foundational idea to show that their worldview is vapid and empty. Then they will go, okay, so what's the replacement? What's your idea? 
I'm so glad you asked. There is a God in heaven who has given us an idea on how this is supposed to work. And then you can rebuild rightly according to a biblical foundation because you have done the work to prepare your heart and mind for that encounter. So, what have we learned here today, children? As the VeggieTales famously once said, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Egypt. He's bigger than sin. He's bigger than slavery. He's bigger than anything. He is God. God will not allow any challenger to stand. Go through, have fun. I've told you to go through and listen to some of the sermons on the on the Exodus and on the, the plagues. Go through. God systematically takes apart Egypt, every avenue of life, because none of those challenges will be allowed to stand. And finally, God will redeem his people. And that's something we've got to remember because we're tempted to forget it way too often. And we're tempted to see what goes on in this world and be like, I don't know if God can overcome this and I think God's forsaken and forgotten. Be quiet. No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. He will redeem his people. He will follow his promises. He will be faithful to what he has proclaimed <coughs> because it's who he is and it's what he has done. All right, children. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. You can check out the website, uh, get all the links. You can find the uh, links to the sermons, all the other good stuff. Planning on being back here a couple times this week, going through some some news stuff. It's going to be interesting. I've been setting aside some news stories that are just – they just blow your mind because they point out the way that the world is just so broken. I mean we I know as Christians we go, man, the world is just broken. Yeah, but we don't understand the depth of it, and that's one of the reasons why we do the news stories that we do. Um Thank you for the prayers for Lou and his family. They're doing a lot better, and we appreciate that. So hopefully Lou will be back with us again tomorrow, and we'll get some things figured out. So until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.